Good morning, thanks for coming. It's going to be in English. Hope we both will understand each other. Uh, well, my presentation was supposed to be animated, but due to some technical difficulties, it's going to be quite static. But imagine that it was animated. So the first, yeah, the first slide, I was, I was planning to show you like piece by piece, but I'll show you everything now. So I'm in software outsourcing business for 17 years. And you can see how many clients we had, how many projects we had, how many programmers I was working with, and how many lines of code we approximately created. So quite an experience in working with customers. And uh, right now I'm doing, I'm developing this platform, which is uh, going to uh, help project managers and projects to do their work better and automate uh, the way they manage tasks and jobs in their projects. This is like I'm advertising myself now, I'm getting to the point. So according to my experience, the more clients trust us, the more money they can give us. The more money they are willing to pay us and the more comfortable they are in our projects. So trust is very important and now I'll try to explain you and show my experience how we are actually increasing the trust our customers have in our projects. Uh, the problem is that the more they trust, the more they feel uncomfortable. Because uh, the customer will always ask themselves, so how do I look while I trust these people? So the more they give, you, they give us trust, the more, uh, the more questions they ask themselves whether they're doing something wrong or right. So whether the company, us, software developers, are cheating or stealing something or you know, using some uh, abusing them in some way. So they ask that question and the answer to some of them looks like that. So they feel that they look like that if they trust too much and they don't want to feel like that. So they want to, and I, I showed that slide on another conference, I, I presented my uh, similar ideas on the PM Con in Kharkiv a week ago when I was talking about honesty in software development. And I was trying to explain how important it is to be honest with our customers and how difficult it is. Today we'll talk about trust, which is so close to honesty, but I would recommend to watch that presentation too. So they don't want to look like that. Our customers don't want to look like idiots. They want to, take, they want to be in charge. They want to, to have control. And they feel that the more trust they have, the more stupid they are. And this is actually true. So I put the equation mark between trust and stupidity because I think and I believe that in general, the more you trust somebody, the more, the less control you have. And it means that the more stupid you are. So you, you don't know how to control the process. That's why you put the trust in there. So if you can control what's going on, you say, I just trust these people. If you can control your employees, you say, I trust my employees. If you can control your contractor, you say, I trust that contractor. So it's better to control and manage instead of just trust. So in general, I believe that trust is not a good term, is not a good thing in business or in management in general. So they feel right. So customers, they feel like idiots if they trust too much, and this is right. So instead of that, we need to give them the control. And control is a good thing. So they need to be able to control us, or at least we can give them the illusion of control. So I put the illusion there, and then I cross that. So do we give them the illusion, or we give them the real control? The first intention of course the first idea is let's give them the illusion let's let's, let's draw the picture of, of control and they will feel that they control us they can do something they 
they, they are in charge, but that's going to be the, just an illusion. I don't think it's a good approach, even though we can discuss that too, but I don't think it's going to help both of us. So I feel that it's better to be more honest with the customer and be in the same boat. So you give them control and you help yourself to control your projects better. And I'll show you how. So there are four things, which I will now get into the points. There are four things I will recommend to use. First of all, metrics, second, automation, third, technical reviews, and transparent motivation. So if you have these four, your customers will feel that they control you and you will control your own business way better, according to my experience. Metrics, automation, tech reviews, and transparent motivation. Number one, metrics. Uh, in order to control something, well, in this slide, I wanted to show you the code first and then ask you the question, do you guys know who it is? And then you would answer, then I would say it's Peter Drucker, who is quite famous for, uh, for, their for, for his management books. But you see the name right away. So uh, that's a really famous quote. If you can't measure it, you can't can measure it, you can't manage it. If your customer doesn't have numbers, about what you're doing, numbers which is telling, which are telling your customers what's going on, then they don't have control, they cannot manage you and they feel like an idiot, like on the previous slide. So we need to give them numbers. Again, I wanted to show you one by one, but let's go on the, from the left, lines of code. So there are a few metrics which I'm giving my customers for the last five years for sure. And I'm giving them these six metrics. Maybe you can give them more, but at least these six, I think, are important. The number one, lines of code. I wanted to ask who of you actually are giving this metric to your clients, to your customers? Do you measure the lines of code in, your, in the projects you're working on and delivering this number? Looks like nobody, right? Most people say it's not important. It's not an important metric. So they're like, this metric tells you nothing about the product you're developing. It's like a misleading information. It's just a number telling you nothing about actual actual product you're developing. I kind of disagree because even though this number is not accurate, it's not, it doesn't show you the progress, it doesn't show you the, the, the actual size of the product you're working on, but it gives you some information. So if you give your customer this number every week, for example, or every few days, then the customer will see that there's something going on. The customer will see the lines of code go up, go down. There will be questions. The customer will come back to you and ask why it's happening. Why it was 100,000 lines and now it's 90,000 lines. What happened? And you will be able to discuss and explain. It will be a good source for discussion. You will be something to talk about with your client. And the client will feel that there is some control because they will talk and they will understand that they know what's going on. The second metric is called hits of code. This is something which we try to invent in our team. You can read about that, just Google for hits of code. It's way more accurate metric than lines of code because, again, just Google hits of code. Uh, it shows how intensively your team is touching the source code, how many changes you're actually doing to the, to the source code, not how big is your file. For example, let's say you're working on the project which has just one file, just one big text file. And there are some people working on that. So the size of the file doesn't actually show maybe the activity, the, 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 how much effort do you put in this file. But if I give you the metric which shows how many lines you actually touched and how often, that will be, that will be a, better, a better metric. So lines of, code, lines of code will keep saying, for example, 100 lines, 100 lines, 100 lines. But we are changing this line. So the hits of code will go up and up and up. 
you just Google it and understand what it is. The, 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 the metric number three is coverage. I'm talking about test coverage. If you are some of your programmers, you will understand what it is. So the, the, the source code which we're working on is, has to be covered by unit tests, an integration test. So if, if the code is not covered, it's a bad sign. If the code is perfectly covered, then the percentage of coverage will go up and it goes from 0% to 100%. If you deliver this number to the customer, and the customer will feel that, that there is some coverage going on, so there are more tests, more unit testing, so it may be better or we go down. There's going to be some dynamic, definitely. There will be some graph showing what's going on. And there will be some control for the customer. So I recommend to, to deliver that metric. Even though some people say it's not important, so this test coverage doesn't say anything because you can cover the whole code base, but still the stability will be low. Even though, still, it's a good number to show to your customer. The next one is bugs. So we need to show the dynamic of what's going on in terms of testing. How many bugs we find, how many bugs we fix. And the customer needs to know that. Our testing activity, the result of testing activity is bugs. Not the, you most probably know about that. So the result of testing and result of like quality assurance engineers, as we call them now, is not the stable software, but the <coughs> bugs they find. So the more bugs they find, the better is the testing. And we need to teach that to the customer, we need to explain that if the number of bugs go up, the number goes up, it's good. If the, if the number stays the same, it's not good. So deliver this metric to the customer and they will appreciate it. Deployments. How many times you deploy? That's, well, we give that, that information, how many times we deploy and how often. And it helps the customer to understand, the client to understand uh, that that we're not developing somewhere in-house, just waiting to deploy it sometime later, which is, a good, which is a bad idea in general, but we are frequently deploying the product to production or to staging or to testing environments somewhere. So it means that our pipeline, our continuous delivery pipeline, which I'm sure you know what it is, what it is so the continuous delivery pipeline works uh, smoothly. So it just the code goes through, the code goes through, and the number goes up and up and up. If it stops, then the customer calls us back and says, what's going on? Why you stop delivering the code? And the last one is hours. So we are actually showing our clients the amount of hours we spent up to date for the development. So we calculate the time, not just in the, in the, not just in the invoice, not just when we just in, invoice the client, but we show the dynamic of how many hours we spent. Again, I think that's a good metric. So we need to measure. That's important. That's a summary. Thing number two, which I think will help the client, is automation. The more, in general, the more automated is the product we're developing, and not just, not just the product itself, but the environment, the development environment, the better, the more stable it is, and the, the, the higher the level of comfort the client will feel. Well, I've been a client as well in many projects, and I know that if the team is working on something which they know how to run, they know how to build, they know how to package, and I don't know that, I don't feel comfortable at all. Comfortable at all. I feel scared because I know if the team goes away for some reason, or if I have some argument with the team, they always have the leverage against me. They always can control me, and I don't want to control them. I don't want them to control me. I want to control my team. If there is no automation, then the team controls me. Because they know how to build the product. They know how to deploy, for example, it to the website or to package it and put it on test flight and 
you know, on the Apple Store. So automation is the key. One thing is just a few highlights. First one, uh, I would recommend, not recommend, but I insist that the, 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 release, the, the release of a new version must happen in just one click. So when you have these release engineers or people who are responsible, that's a good title, it's quite a famous title, release engineers or delivery managers, these people are, they are very important, but the product has to be released without that release engineers. So if that release engineer is responsible for this release and he or she is doing the release, that's a wrong idea, that's a wrong setup. The right setup is the delivery manager configures everything, or release engineer configures everything, and then we have one button, which I can click, you can click, the customer can click. I click that button, or I send the message, or I do some one action, and the whole pipeline just triggers, and the product is on test flight. So I have a new version of my iPhone. The team is developing the, the mobile application, and then I'm as a customer, I go in, I click one button, and boom, 15 minutes, and I have a new version on test flight, and I can test it. If, if it's not happening like that, it's no good. It means the customer depends on you, which doesn't create trust at all. The customer will trust you less and less if that happens. Second one is releases must happen frequently. Oh yeah, and this is recommendation. So I recommend to use this instrument, which is open source. I created it three years ago, and we are using it in all our projects. It's free, open source, it's called Rulter. Uh, you can see the link, you can try it out, it's free for everybody, for, all, for commercial projects and free projects, it's just an open source tool, which many, many projects right now on GitHub are using it, so try it out, try it in your team. It will actually help you, yeah? Sorry, I just spelled that name. Rulter. Rulter, yeah. So you will be able uh, uh, to do that one-click release with this tool. It will automate everything from start to the very end. Second, we need frequent releases. So releases must happen frequently, not once a week, not once a month. They need to happen multiple times a day. I would recommend them to happen after each change you make to the source code. That's what we are doing. So every time we commit the new, well, we close the new pull request, so we merge the pull request, that's a, the GitHub term. Every time there is some change in the code, I get a new version on test flight, if we're developing the mobile app. So every time one of the programmers is actually making the change, then there is a new version of the, of, the, of the application on the mobile phone. That's how it should be. Not when the, te when the team is ready or there's an end of the week or end of the month. That's wrong. So they have to be frequent. That will create trust for the client. The client will see that the, the, the new version is coming in every, every day and there is one button which makes it possible. So the client will feel that if the team disappears tomorrow, if the team goes away for some reason or something happens, there's still control here. The client is in charge, it controls the, the source code. And the last one, code ownership. I think it's a good practice in general to make sure that the repository with the source code belongs to the client. The client owns it on GitHub, on Bitbucket, wherever it is. So the client has to own it, not the developers. When I outsource something to anyone, when I play the role of a customer, I always make sure that the repository is mine. Because you don't want, we don't want that fight when something goes wrong and then give me the code and no, we're not going to give you the code. Or sorry, the code is in private repository. We will transfer it to you when you pay or whatever. All these discussions, the customer will predict them to happen. The customer will know that eventually they will happen. And the level of trust will just go down. You don't need that. So just give the code out. Just let the customer own it. 
from the first day and then deal with other problems somehow, somehow else. <laughs> you definitely will have them, but that's a separate story. So <laughs> trust is important. Number three, we have four, remember. So now number three, technical reviews. That's important, and let me see the next slide. Yeah, so technical reviews are um, when the team is working, when we are working, we have a contract, we're working on this contract, and the client has to trust us. We tell them that we are the best developers, we know everything, we do it the right way, blah, 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 but that's not enough. What we do to build it, to, to increase the trust, we invite experts from outside. Even the customer sometimes hires that expert. They come to us time to time, every two weeks, every month, they review what we're doing and report to the client. So every two weeks or every month, the client gets independent analysis, independent audit of our work, of our product, of our code, of our database, of our process, of our continuous integration, everything. So the client always knows that we've been reviewed, we've been audited, we are under control. So no matter, we still, and this, and this reviews, the, the technical reviews, they need to be there are a few things I have to say about them. So they need to be, uh, it, it's a good practice. It helps us. That's my point. It's not for the customer only, it's for us as well. Because it helps us to feel comfortable. We know that there will be no, uh, we, we, by these reviews, we lower the risk. We lower, we decrease the probability of the situation when the customer suddenly realizes that there is something really wrong with us. And, and then the entire project just collapses. So we want the customer to know about problems, about potential problems, about our drawbacks, about our, you know, about our defects in our code in advance, while we go. So the more reviews we have, the better. They have to be independent, so it has to be somebody who is not part of our team, always. It has to be some expert from the market. Second, they have to be regular. Not just once, not just let's do the review because it's a good moment to do the review because the customer is nervous. That's too late. When the customer is nervous already, you're too late. You need to start doing them regularly from the first day of the project. Second, they have to be critical. So don't expect that experts who will come to review your code to give positive feedback. They have to give negative feedback. They have to deliver negative information to the customer and prepare the customer to risks and threats and defects and troubles in advance. And they will be troubles. They have to be formal, so they must be in writing. That expert who will come in has to write them down. They have to be documented and they need to have them somewhere, you know, recorded in some database, in some artifact, like a list of artifacts. You need to get back to them later, analyze, it will help you as well, not just the customer. And the last point is that it has to be done by expert, meaning that people who will do them must have better knowledge level than your team. So if you have senior Java developers in your team and you invite some junior developer, it's a bad idea because you will not get anything valuable from that review. You need to hire somebody who is first of all more expensive than your team. If you guys in your team are getting like average salary, for example, you invite somebody who is getting well, like way bigger salary from this market or invite somebody abroad, invite somebody from Upwork, find somebody from the market who will charge $100 an hour, $200 an hour. And in just a few hours, that person will give a very good overview of what's going on and, and give this information to your customer. Both sides will be happy. The trust level will go up. 
I, I, I was speaking about that on another conference in Kiev uh, about three weeks ago, and this is the link to the presentation. So there are more information about these technical reviews, explaining how to do them right, what not to do, what to do. I would recommend to take a look at it. And the last one, transparent motivation. So both the client and you, we understand that our goal is to make as much money as possible. And the goal of the customer is to stop that project as soon as possible. So the client wants to spend as little as, as he can or she can, and we want to take as much money as possible. So we have completely opposite financial goals. So we are against each other. They are spending money, we're making money. And customers understand that. And that doesn't help to build trust at all. So they always know that we are making, we're taking money out of their pocket. We're delivering something bad, of course. We're not just taking money. We're writing some code, we're delivering some product. But still, our key motivation is not to finish it up and to close the project and say, wow, we finished that. Not at all. Our goal is to keep it running, to keep it running and take all the money, whatever the client has, to take all of it. So, Again, it's a slide from the, from the previous talk, from the previous presentation. So I usually give like example. That's a good metaphor, I think. So on the left side, you see the taxi driver who is saying, I'll take you to the airport for $15. And on the right side, there's a driver who says, I'm going to charge you $50 an hour. And we're going to drive to the airport. The left one is the fixed cost, fixed cost project, fixed price. The right one is time and material. The both approaches are wrong. So the left one, the driver will most definitely take more money from you than it costs to take to the airport. So if, it takes, if the driver takes 15, it means that it actually costs 10 or 5 to get to the airport. So the driver, of course, will do the padding, so it will increase the price to as much as possible. And in, in software projects, fixed price means constant war between the client and, and us developers. Because we're going to always fight for each change request, we're going to always try to justify every change to increase the budget. Because we don't want to work for free. So it's not a good idea because it's, it's, a, it's a permanent conflict, not constructive, but quite destructive. Because it doesn't help the project at all. It's just a conflict between two you know, pockets, between two walls. The second, of course, is even worse, the time and material. Because for 50 bucks an hour, the driver will just take a long, long route to the airport and will charge you as much as possible because you pay me by the hour. So I'm going to drive there for years and you keep paying. This is what's happening with most software projects. We keep driving, they keep paying it. So it doesn't help for the trust. What I'm suggesting is you find, I'm not going to explain how exactly, but you need to find in each project, you need to find a way how to break down the long way, the long path, into small increments and charge your client for the results you deliver. Not for the time you spend, but for the results you deliver. And it must not be the huge result, not the fixed cost you know, deliverable, which you will never deliver. But you need to find a way how to charge milestone-based. And these milestones must be, must be micro-milestone-based. So really small, like one day, I don't know, one week, 10 days, one day, in our case, we charge for 30 minutes. So we managed to break, I'm not going to explain how, but we managed in our projects to break down the long route into really small increments. Each of them is 30 minutes. So we, we have so many milestones and the, the customer actually pays us for micro, micro milestones. I think this is the way to go. So you need to find something similar in your project. Time and material is not the solution. Fixed cost is not the solution. They're both will degrade, will decrease the trust, and you eventually going to lose the client.
Uh, this is the link to my article. I wrote about that about a year ago. Everything I just said today. It's a link to my blog. Check it out. Follow me. And I'm finished. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you have questions, um, yeah. Go ahead. That's right. So can you tell me please if the presentation of such detailed information to your clients uh, would not cause the micromanagement from the side of the client and will it not be destructive for the team? Yeah, it's a good question. So the question what happens if I Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So the question is uh, if I show if we show all these metrics to the client uh, will not it cause micromanagement from the client side? Because the client will see all the numbers and, for example, will see the coverage and the client will see the coverage just dropped for like 5% for some reason yesterday and the client will pick up the phone and say, hey guys, put it back. Just, just do it this, I mean, do it now, I'm paying you, so I want this coverage to get back because I just read on the internet that coverage is so important. It's going to be definitely a micromanagement. Uh, that, that definitely will happen if the client doesn't know the rules of work in your team. So before you, definitely, it's a good comment, so before you show all the metrics, you need to teach the customer of what they are and what happens if they change. So there has to be some, some policy of work. So the client must know, for example, that the coverage is the, the metric which is less important than, for example, the, 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 the delivery of milestone. So the client will try to micromanage always, this is happens, it happens every time, the client will try to do that and you should always try to put the client back to the policy and say, hey, we just agreed that this is our ground rule, that's how we work, so this is the procedure of what must happen if the coverage goes down, you submit a ticket, we process that ticket, you pay for that or you don't pay for that, so it goes through the change control, we decide when it's going to happen and we put the coverage back. So the client must know the rules of work like everybody else. So that's the solution against micromanagement. Okay, the next question is, who is responsible for providing this information? We're actually teaching how, to, I think how the, the implementation goes from inside. Yeah, the question is, who's going to teach the client? Who's yes. going to tell that information to the client? I think it's a project manager's responsibility, definitely. Not the team, I mean, not the, the developers, they, they just work. And the project manager has to, actually not only the project manager, but has to be some project management office in the company. If there's not just a company of three people, if the company is a little bit bigger, then all project managers, they must not individually teach the, each client from, from scratch. So the project management office has to build some policies, some documents, some explanations, some wiki pages, some maybe video tutorials for the client. And then the, if I'm a project manager and join your company, I just get access to this knowledge base and then the new client comes in and I say, oh, I have a video for you explaining what happens if the coverage goes down. I have a video for you explaining what this hits of codes is, what the kind of metric is this. So I have some, some knowledge base which I can show my client and then it will be easier for me, for me to work. If the project manager starts from scratch all the time, it's not a good idea. It's not a, it's not a good situation for a company. Yeah. Uh, could you please tell more about fine grain mechanism? As I understood, you use micro-milestone base. Maybe if you use, uh, you have examples of, of another fine grain mechanism, also tell us. Yeah, fine. It's a good question. Uh, it will take like a few hours of discussion. So uh, I, each of you has to find some way to do that. So definitely, like I said, fixed price is not a solution for software developers. And time and material is even worse. So there has to, has to be something in the middle. 
In our case, we found, uh, I mean, the best way is somehow to uh, your manager, your you know, business analysts or your programmers, they have to be able to find some deliverable pieces of, of product inside the bigger scope. How they will do that? It depends on, I mean, on their qualification, on their skills, on many, many factors. But it has to be all the time you need to ask yourself for each task. Let's put it this way. So when you start the sprint, you always print, you always like planning what to do. So there's going to be some task. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing that. So each time you give this task, you need to ask yourself, is it going to be some valuable deliverable to the customer? And if it's not, replan the task. So we must not do tasks for ourselves. We always must plan the task so they deliver something to the client, something tangible, something they can feel. If it's report building, we're not going to finish the report building, for example, in the next two days, but at least we're going to show them reports, like empty reports. If it's going to be some database retrieval, okay, we're not going to retrieve the real data, but let's retrieve something. So every time you, you, know, you move forward, you, in most cases, programmers are breaking down tasks into pieces which are valuable for them. That's how programmers think. Me as well, so I'm a programmer as well. So if you give me the bigger problem, I will start working on something which is, which is inside, which is the core piece. You know, I'm going to start planning the database design. I'm going to develop some utility files. I'm going to develop some libraries, some frameworks, everything inside. And then in the end, it will all become a product. And that's a wrong idea in general. So this, 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 this moving from, from bottom to up, it's wrong. So we need to move backward. We need to move from top to down. So I'm as a programmer, I need to ask myself, okay, what's the something which I can deliver right now for the client? And then I build this functionality. I don't have the database yet, but this is something already works. So I, I need to deliver what, what makes sense for the client and then go deeper and deeper. But programmers think the opposite way, usually. Yeah. If, for example, the task requires some R&U work, uh, it can take, I don't know, two days, one week, maybe even months. How to manage this situation? Yeah, the question is what to do if, the, the, if the, there's a work which requires, requires research and development. So we don't know how to design it, we don't know how to develop it, and we still want to deliver something, right? So the client doesn't want to pay for a whole month of five people sitting and thinking about something. The client wants to see 10 milestones in this month, 10 pieces, and then the client will pay $1,000 here, $2,000 here, $500 here. That's a, that's, a better, that's a better payment structure. How to do that? It is difficult, but it is possible. That's what I think. I don't have like an exact answer because I don't know the real, real problem we are solving. But of course, if you're trying to, I don't know, if you're trying to invent the time machine, maybe it's going to be impossible. But in reality, we are not inventing time machines. In reality, all of this R&D work, research and development, it's in most cases something quite obvious, plus a little bit of research. But it's quite obvious that research, we need to find a way how to at how still deliver something to the client first and then do the research. That's what I think. Again, again not, not an exact answer. Just, uh, think about it, for example, he wants to get some uh, visual, visible result, right? Yeah. So it can be, uh, be like some report or like Word document which will describe uh, about what uh, uh, like a developer researched the uh, like past two days. Or, and uh, did he find this or did not? Mm -hmm. so this is the question because, for example, after some, after some time, for example, this is the 
some huge task or uh, can be like recognition of some third party libraries mm -hmm. that, that uh, requires much time. Uh, customer won't be able to get it out quickly or up to date. It can take much time. Yes, if it, you know, of course, that's, the, that's a good comment. It may happen. So if there, you don't know what to do, if you don't have the exact answer, you're going you're gonna to research and research and research. But that's, again, it's just, it means that the qualification of the programmer is not as high as it should be. So the good architect, the good designer thinks top down. So it thinks, what can I do for the client? How can it work? And then it goes down, down to smaller and smaller problems. So if, of course, your entire problem is research and development, like I'm saying, time machine, I don't know where to start, it just, you know, it has to work, I don't know. So then it's too big, of course, I can't, nothing can happen. But in reality, it's something like, we need a mobile app which will order taxi. So find a way which is gonna work faster than Uber, for example, I don't know, something like better, faster, nicer picture, or something. We can start with something, we can start with some solution which will show that we're moving forward. Then we go down and then we go down and then we finally will get down to the key core problem which we're eventually going to solve. But, I mean, it shouldn't be the other way around. That's my understanding. Yeah. The technical reviews, who is initiating the auditing of the port, you or the client? Who is starting them, who is starting technical reviews? Well, if the client is smart, then the client will come back to us and say, I need technical reviews. So this is what a smart client should know. If the client is smart enough, then, then the client will start the software project and say, hey guys, this is the contract, this is the, the, this is the money, this is how we work, and every week you're gonna see my friend who's gonna review what you're doing. This is what a smart client will do. Not because the client doesn't trust us, but because the client wants to trust us. So this is how the client will behave. The client wants to keep the trust for long term. If the client is not smart and just want to, you know, doesn't understand what trust is, then the client will say, I trust you guys, go ahead, just I love you, I feel like you're so, you're so responsible people, just go ahead. Eventually it will collapse. So the client will do it. If the client is not doing that and the client is not smart enough, and then we're teaching the client. We're coming back and saying, you know what, don't trust us. We don't need your blind trust. We want you to trust us a little bit and control us a lot. So trust is a good thing, which it stays on top of a huge control. So if there's no control, trust will just ruin the whole situation. Yeah. If, for example, clients come to come to comes to you and say, "I would like to work on that uh, time material," uh, do you suggest him to uh, like use this uh, micro milestones or micro milestones or to use this time material? Well, in our case, we don't use time and material at all. So we always go for tough for micro tasking and micro micro milestones. Yeah. But that's our approach. We're just, we're just doing it for so many years already and we just don't know how to work on time and material. Because if there's time and material on the side of a customer, I translate that to programmers and they become lazy. So if I am lazy for the client, if I'm that taxi driver who is driving, you know, making detours and driving for hours to get to the airport, then everybody in the car will do the same. They will feel like, hey, the driver is doing that, so why sh we should be different? So, No, we, we charge we charge by let's say by the hour, yeah. So it's like micro micro time and material. Yes. yes, but this is yeah, this is the same. It's not exactly the same because it's just a delivery. It's just a deliverable, yeah. So every time the customer is getting something, is getting some results. Result. So the client, if he's not happy, if she he is not happy, then they can claim and get back and analyze what's going on. So we can restore the, the trust immediately. Because if there's long, long, long project, I mean, long, the milestone is three months ahead, then the trust will go down. I mean, the client will feel not comfortable. 
when we deliver multiple times a week or multiple times a month or we are delivering multiple times an hour, and the clients, the client can observe what's going on and can always discuss things. What is the average timeline for the micro milestone? Well, like I'm saying, we're delivering multiple times a day, but that's us. So for you, I would suggest at least once a week, at least once a week, you have to deliver the results and say, hey, something is ready. Version 0.17 is out there. Check it out. And we keep going. Check it out and it costs you $5,000. We keep moving. Another milestone is $4,500. Another milestone, the client, the client will see, compare the amount of money versus the, the progress, the increment, the size of increment. And we'll always be able to complain, but that complaint will be small. Comparing to the huge complaint when we finally got to the airport and I have to pay $200. What? Yeah, but we agreed about that. How do you ensure the picture for the client what he will get after, I don't know, like 100 well, we have predictions, and that's why we have architects. So people predict, so we have some kind of vision. So we always re-estimate. That's a good question. So you always need to re-estimate and give the client some overall picture. And say, like, we're going to face 17 more milestones, and then the product will be ready. 17. Usually people say it's going to be one or maybe two milestones. We're giving them hundreds of Well, in our case, we're giving them, like, a huge graph of milestones. We're just saying it's going to happen like that. In your case, you may say every week you're going to see this, this, and that. It will be difficult to plan, of course. It's way easier to plan something in three months and then something else in half a year. It will be more difficult to say what exactly will happen every week. But you don't need to do that precisely. At least you have to promise the client that there will be something every week. That's already enough. So just promise that we're going to deliver and we're going to charge for like weekly. Or, yeah. So if you, for example, planning for one week, let's mm -hmm. say 40 hours, and you didn't manage to finish what you're planning for 40 hours. You are charging 40 hours, for example, for the customers, or you charge what you actually promised, for example, I don't know. In our case, we charge for how much we spend. Okay. So it's time and material. Mm -hmm. So the client just agrees that, go ahead, spend whatever you spend, and by the end of the week, I'm gonna pay you for that. If by the end of the week, the numbers go off, they will not go off you know, bad, in a bad way. Like the client expected like $5,000, and then it's a bill for 50. It's not gonna happen. So it was five, an expectation, okay, we spent six. Then the client may say, all right, or may come back to us and say, it's a little bit too much, so don't go over the limit. If it happens again, we're gonna have problems. It happened to us sometimes. But it's gonna be small discussion. This negotiation is gonna be really micro discussion. Okay, 1,000, like 20%, it's not a big deal. So the, the smaller the increment, the better. In our case, it's even more, like even smaller. So the client sees spending like every, every day, so they see the graph of how money is coming out of the pocket. No, not exactly. We have a lot of automation. So we automate our project management. And that's what this product is for. So we are using software which helps us to, uh, which helps us to, it's our internal software right now. So that's the product we're using, which helps us to automate everything I, I said, everything I explained today. So automate this task assignment, budgeting, calculating, estimating, showing these numbers to the customer, everything. So in our case, the project manager is not doing all that. And now we're putting this product on the market. So it's gonna be public very soon. So you, everybody will be able to use it in your own project. And, 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 and dedicate a lot of work, which you're doing right now as a project manager, to that piece. It's not ready yet, it's still in planning. So we're gonna launch it this summer. 
if you're interested, there's a form, go to the website, fill the form, you're gonna get, you will get free access to like the first three months just to try it out. So we, we have automation. And that's what I said actually in the previous, my previous presentation last week ago in Kharkiv. I said that a good manager is the one who is lazy. So always try, as a good manager, always try to outsource your work, outsource your work to computers, to other people. Don't do this routine work. Because good manager is a manager who is doing a lot of routine work, a lot. You need to reschedule, reschedule, recalculate. It's a lot of work which computers need to do, not us people. So a good project manager is lazy and not doing this stuff. So that's why we got lazy like 10, 7 years ago when we started the software and now we put the software on the market. Do we still have time? Yeah, two minutes. Two minutes, all right. <laughs> One more question, yeah. I have a question about code ownership. So you mentioned that it is better to push code to apply to the Yeah, that's a question. So a good one. So I said that code must be owned by the client from the first day. So you just give the repository and you work in the repository which belongs to the client. So that's right. Any moment of time, the client can just shut down, close all access and take the code out and not pay you. Did it happen to me? Yes. Did it happen to me many times? Yes. So how do I work with that? I don't have an exact answer. Well, the first probably is that you work by the law of country which will kind of protect you. So if your company is an American company and the client is an American company, your chances of getting your money are quite high. That's the first rule. So don't, I mean, don't sign a contract between American company and Ukrainian company, for example. It's not going to help. So always have an American entity which will sign a contract or European entity. They will be afraid of doing that. If they, they don't going to do it just to steal your money. The second situation, they may go out of money. They can go bankrupt. So they may just have no money to pay. It happens to big companies as well. In that case, what you can do is that, well, in our case, we just bill frequently. We bill every week. So we don't wait till the end of the month. We just ask them for money every week. If the bill is not paid, if the invoice is not paid, it's a sign for us that something goes on, goes wrong, and then we ask questions. So what's your business situation? So we are trying to, you know, we're trying to understand the real situation of the client. Do you have investments? Do you have this product on the market. What's your revenue structure? Are you getting money from the, from the market? If there is no revenue structure, there's no investments, just some you know, pocket money of the, of the owner, then the problem is, the risk is high. So in this case, well, it happened to me, I just said no to some clients. I just, I just realized that the problem is coming and I said like, you know, we can't continue because, you know, we can't credit you. Because in America, we don't pay upfront. In most cases, the clients, they don't pay upfront, they're not gonna pay you because, you know, Maybe the first down payment, but not, not on the go. So they will pay you when you invoice them. And, and, if you, and that actually means credit. So you give them like a loan because you always give them some work upfront and you're, gonna, you're kind of helping their business to run. So if you don't believe in their business, don't do that. So again, I don't have an exact answer. I just, I just shared my experience. It happened to me many times. It keeps happening. And there are two, two three maybe indicators of the trouble. Just, just spot them earlier find them earlier and shut down the project. Сподіваюсь, ви також гарно прокачали свій англійський, як і я. Дуже дякую. Дякую.